have you seen where your earphones are and where they're plugged in? Should be here. Oh yeah, there's a, there's a light there's a light there, Andy. Plug it where the light is. That could be the medium speaking. How's that? <laughs> Can Plug you... it where the light is. <laughs> Come to the light. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, imagine my frustration. And there it was. I mean, it's a 17 bank <laughs> Tesla charging station, and there wasn't a free bay, so I had to wait an enormous length of time before one of the Teslas removed itself, and I got in and was able to charge. I felt such a Fool. Um, uh, are you recording this, uh, this <laughs> fried gold, Nicky? Oh, that's good. Excellent. Um, <laughs> what are you engaged in at the moment, Stephen? Are you, have you got, you've got multiple projects. Well, what I can think, you talk about? What can you... Like a lot of people, the tundra, the permafrost <laughs> of, of lockdown, which is now slowly enjoying a spring melt, is pushing out all kinds of long, dormant plants that I'd almost forgotten about, a couple of um, mm. documentaries, and I have one final week to finish uh, a very exciting documentary to me about about the seasons, really, about the the sun's annual journey. Brilliant. Uh, or rather, our annual journey. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have read my Copernicus. <laughs> I have corrected the error that yes. I previously it's, it's, it's us. Yes. It's, it's you that's moving. <laughs> yes, those are far away. <laughs> um, so I've got a week in Iceland, which I'm looking forward to in, in, in two weeks' time. I'm doing another documentary about dinosaurs, um, which is uh, a fascinating subject, though I'm feeling very guilty that I look as if I'm trying to sort of Hog David Attenborough's terrain, <laughs> and that, that would be an act of les majesté if ever there was one. Uh, it's just a sort of coincidence, as I say, that these two things have popped up because they've been waiting for a long, long time. Well, it's very good of you to mark your return to it freedom is. by it's coming here and close to saintly. <laughs> um, but at least, at least, the subject of the conversation is one that you are. Deeply familiar with and Indeed. Um, and uh, and sympathetic to. Well, one assumes sympathetic to Stephen. I mean, sympathy is a word I think is very appropriate for yeah. Wilde. He was a, he had a sympathetic nature himself, and yes, I, I feel great great pity and sadness when thinking of what happened to him. And yes, he has so much meaning for me. A, 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 professional meaning as well <laughs> I mean to have played him in a film to play a lead role if you look like me is not something you expect I mean I've never been I hope uh, either unduly absurdly modest about my attainments uh, and physical appearance but but nor have I been uh, particularly vain <laughs> and I was always aware that I was never going to get the parts that Brad Pitt had just turned down uh, so w w when I was offered to play uh, Oscar Wilde, it was an extraordinary feeling for me. That I amazing. Could, yeah, really amazing. I watched the film again the other night. Me too. Did you? I, I barely looked at Jude Law. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was transfixed, Stephen. I was transfixed. <laughs> Without, as it were, blowing smoke. It's, it is a really extraordinary performance. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It was, an, I mean, aside from everything else, one of the miracles of doing a film like that is... Firstly, we had Merlin Holland, Wilde's grandson, as a consultant, and to just to stand next to him, to shake his hand, at the, that, and to see the fingers, not exactly like the Max Beerbohm cartoons, I mean, not really fat, but a certain pudginess, which is clearly a genetic mm. Wilde mm. marker mm. that is just so identical. 
Um, and that face, the soft face, the, um, uh, and that that was extraordinary. And also with Jude, say, to scenes at Magdalen College, Oxford, uh, walking along um, a little sort of ditch-like uh, uh, river that goes along the side of the deer park and then towards some balustrades and stone um, uh, stone pillars and things, that there is a photograph of Wilde and Bosey, Lord Alfred, uh, in exactly that position. Yeah. So we were standing just where they yeah, were, yeah. and my hand was on the same baluster that Wilde's hand was yes. on, and the skyline was identical. And that, that those things have a kind of almost mystical effect on one to feel so connected. Right, yeah. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us peering into a narrow, whitewashed cell in a provincial English jail. It is March 1897. Seated at the tiny desk is a tall, gaunt man dressed in prison uniform, drab, coarse trousers, blue worsted stockings, heavy boots, a loose jacket and vest, bearing the number C33 on his back. His hair is close-cropped and pokes out from beneath a grey and red cap printed all over with crow's foot arrows. In front of him is a single sheet of foolscap paper resting on a coarsely bound notebook. He picks up his pen and begins to write. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and as you may have realised, we are delighted to be joined today in real life, in the same room, <laughs> by Stephen Fry. <laughs> Hello, Stephen. Hello, and thank you for inviting me to a room, not a Zoom. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Stephen is an actor, broadcaster, comedian, director and writer. To focus just on his literary achievements, he is the author of five novels, three volumes of autobiography and numerous non-fiction works that stretch from the retelling of Greek myths to classical music, mammalian conservation... English prosody, and as of last November, his own remarkable collection of neckties. <laughs> Bravo. Fries uh, ties. Oh, uh, can, can we talk all right, or is the sound of the barrel being scraped getting in the way? <laughs> oh, I love it. Ah, what are you interested in, Stephen? Yeah. <laughs> his audiobook performances are legendary, encompassing Anton Chekhov, Pushkin... And the entire <laughs> Harry Potter oeuvre, of course. He is also a master podcaster, collaborating most recently with my colleague John on Stephen Fry's Inside Your Mind, a 12-part history of the brain for Audible. And let me ask you, Stephen, while I've got you here, as a collaborator, do you find John to be reliable? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> Is he on time? Does he deliver scripts? <laughs> if there's one thing... <laughs> that is joyous. It's to have a friend who is messier, more disordered, <laughs> later Amen. <laughs> than one yeah. is oneself. One can polish one's medals and think, at least yeah. I get things done better than John. But no, John is a genius, as you he know. Is, He's do. a magnificent mind and a wonderful man. But, yeah, like my dear friend Douglas Adams, <laughs> he has a casual on, relationship guys. with the deadline. <laughs> <laughs> it's my nerves, Steve. I was I'm here early off. today. It's my, my nerves. I was here early today, I may say. He's like my husband, <laughs> like, yeah, who, who yeah. is a, absolutely wonderful, but is just not a punctual person. So if we're going out somewhere, I, I just find myself always pacing up and down by the front door, knowing the, the taxi's there, terrified that it's going to give up and drive away. 
and uh, I'll sort of try not to call up. But, and once he came up with this immortal line um, when I was really panicking as we were about to leave. I don't know what you're fussing about. We're not late yet. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. that word yet. Wow. Yeah. And on this week of all weeks, let us just step back in awe at the fact that since he joined in 2008, an early adopter, always an early adopter in the realm of tech, in fact, Stephen has amassed 12.4 million Twitter followers. Although, has that gone down in the last 48 hours <laughs> on the day we're recording this, like everyone's has? I don't suppose you check. I haven't checked, to be honest. It went down about five years ago from 16 million when they had a great clean-out of bots and it yeah, was yeah. discovered that I had at least 5 million bots following me. <laughs> and how would you characterise your... Uh, we can ignore the uh, Elon Musk in the room. <laughs> how would you characterise your relationship with Twitter these days? You were very uh, um, warm presence mm. on Twitter early on and then you step back a bit mm. because you mm. found it I think too stressful was it really better in the old days do you think oh yes it, it, was? yes it was it was it was just more amiable and um, I compare it to a um, a watering hole a, 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 a pool a natural pool or lake that um, somewhere in the countryside and you discover it's a great place to swim and you swim around and other people join in and you will swim and you wave at each other and then slowly more and more people join in and enjoy it and some of them pee in the pool and, <laughs> and then suddenly you see something very unfortunate floating towards you on the and then you d sort of tread water and your foot touches the bottom and there's broken glass and yeah. the thing has become yeah. a pit and a sty and a horror yeah. and it just yeah. isn't fun anymore and and so I there were a couple of occasions where I you know however one wants to put it stormed off through my toys out of the pram however you like to say these things all just got fed up um, but I've always come back, and I have to be honest, part of it is just simply selfishness. It's incredibly handy for some mm. publicity purposes mm. to have 12.4 million people. Yeah. And also, you know, for the purposes of one's friends who have things they want to publicise mm -hmm. and, you know, their various charities and so on, uh, it's such an easy way to help them to get those, you Absolutely. know, such a number of eyeballs onto their projects yeah. and causes. Yeah. The book we're here to discuss is, in fact, a letter known since 1905 as De Profundis, Latin for Out of the Depths, and a translation of the first line of Psalm 130. It's a 50,000-word missive composed in Reading Prison by Oscar Wilde between January and March 1897, towards the end of his two-year sentence for gross indecency. It is addressed to Lord Alfred Douglas, otherwise known as Bosey, his estranged lover and the prime cause of his downfall. Now, there are many editions, uh, with and without contextual material, of De Profundis, uh, available uh, on the internet, <laughs> in bookshops, in libraries. We thought it would be useful to just recommend one to you. The, the first one we would recommend is volume two of the Oxford University Press, Complete Works of Oscar Wilde, and that is currently available direct from Oxford's website for £232.50. <laughs> If so, you can't stretch to that... <laughs> you want one for all the family. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the London Library's copy here, incidentally. I borrowed it Excellent. for this. But if you can't stretch to that, there is a Penguin Classic Edition called De Profundis and Other Prison Writings. Uh, it's about a tenor, and that is edited with an and with an introduction by Colm Toybin, the novelist, uh, Colm Toybin. That's really excellent. I think you mean Colm Toybin. 
Yeah. I think I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Colm Toybean, thank you. And uh, I also, one final shout, you can probably pick this up for pence. It's the old 80s and 90s Oxford World Classics edition of The Soul of Man and Prison Writings by Oscar Wilde, edited by Isabel Murray. This is really excellent. This has the essays, The Soul of Man, yeah, it does. De Profundis, some letters and The Ballad of Reading Jail. So all the contextual material is there as well. And it's worth saying that if you were to look online for a free download of the text from a, a wonderful source like the Gutenberg uh, Project, you will find that that's an older edition yeah. that isn't the complete letter. Yeah. The letter did have um, redactions or excisions um, until whoa, 1962. 62 was the final full version. Yeah. Well, we're going to, was, we're going to delve say, into the various versions, so it's <laughs> right. edge of the seat stuff. <laughs> the, the next exciting thing I was about to say, Andy, was that the publishing history of De Profundis is complicated. It was first published in 1905 by Wells' friend and literary executor Robert Ross, who published the text shorn of the autobiographical elements and the references to Bosey and the rest of the Queensbury family. The full version wasn't published until it appeared in 1962 in the Letters of Oscar Wilde, edited and published by Rupert Hart Davis. So it's a book of two halves. The first is a long examination of Wilde's relationship with Bosey Douglas and just how it destroyed his life and reputation. The second is a remarkable meditation on the life of Jesus Christ, not in his usual role as divine saviour, but as the model of a creative artist. Now established as one of the greatest prose works in the English language, most readers would agree with Max Beerbohm's early review that in De Profundis we see Wilde here as the spectator of his own tragedy. His tragedy was great. It is one of the tragedies that will always live on in romantic history. But before we settle down to pick our literary oakum and plumb our own emotional deaths, Andy, what have you been reading this week? Uh, thanks, John. I've been reading a book, new book, called All the Living and the Dead by Hayley Campbell. And uh, I've started doing a thing on um, Backlist. I've noticed that publishers have occasionally quote us, John, and it's made me very paranoid about what we say in these slots. Yeah. Because a lot of the time, if I'd written it, it would be I'd try and make it good. But a lot of the time you see yourself... R really a... great, Andy yeah. Miller. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, wow, it was just so wonderful. Andy Miller blacklisted. Yeah. That's happened. Thank you, whoever did that. Anyway, uh, so I'm going to read a quote now that if the publicist at Raven Books is listening to this, you can have this because I prepared it earlier. And it's about All the Living and the Dead by Hayley Campbell. In this thoroughly morbid new book, Hayley Campbell explores the subject of death in compelling and forensic detail, a display of true rigor mortis. <laughs> That's very You good. can have that. That's free. Take it. So uh, this is a book about death, an exploration of death. I'm, I, I want to hear a little bit of, of Hayley reading it, so I'm only going to talk for a couple of minutes. Hayley is the daughter of the co-creator with Alan Moore of From Hell, Eddie Campbell. And she mentions that very early because she says, uh, early in the book, I grew up obsessed with death because I grew up surrounded by death because my whole childhood, Dad and Alan, were working on this epic graphic novel about the Jack the Ripper murders. And so I got very used to hearing the words Jack the Ripper and seeing Dad's often quite graphic 
um, roughs for what was going to go into the finished comics and then the graphic novel. And um, she become, has become a very successful journalist, broadcaster. And she decides that what she's going to do is go and spend time with people whose day-to-day -day life is death. An embalmer, a funeral director, grave diggers, uh, crime scene cleaners. That's a particularly <laughs> grim chapter. Creators of death masks. And what could be a series of journalistic assignments, however, as it goes on, she begins to find that it is having a terrible effect on her personally. And so the writing of the book becomes part of the process of the trauma that she's inflicting on herself by writing the book. And as you know, I love books, a book about books. So this is a book about death, but it's also a book about books. So I learned a lot from it, uh, journalistically. I was infotained. It made me think about my own mortality. It made me think about what I might want, where I might want my remains to go. Medical science, the earth, upper chimney, other. And I was really moved as well by the way in which the process of writing the book takes its toll on, on the author. So here's a little clip of Hayley reading from quite near the start and this will just give you a, a, a taste of her voice uh, written and spoken. About 50 of us are in a large room at the University College London holding a wake for a long dead philosopher on his 270th birthday. His severed head, on show for the first time in decades, is in a bell jar by the Budweiser's. Down the hall, his skeleton sits in a glass box as usual, dressed in his own clothes, his gloved skeletal hand perched on his walking stick, with a wax head where his real one was supposed to go, back before the plan for preservation went wrong. Students nearby pay him as much attention as they would a piece of furniture. Between annual checks to note new stages of decrepitude, Jeremy Bentham's real head is locked away in a cupboard, and nobody gets to see it. Dr. Southwood Smith, executor of Bentham's will and dissector of his body, had tried to preserve it so it looked untouched, extracting the fluids by placing the head under an air pump over sulfuric acid. But the head turned purple and stayed that way. He admitted defeat and contacted a wax artist to create a fake one, while the real head was hidden. But three years prior to tonight's wake, a shy academic in charge of Bentham's care had shown it to me for a piece I was writing. We peered at his soft blonde eyebrows and blue glass eyes as his dried skin filled the room with the smell of beef jerky. He told me that when Bentham was alive, he used to keep his future glass eyeballs in his pocket, getting them out at parties for a laugh. Here they were now, 186 years after his death, wedged in leathery eye sockets, looking out on a room full of people gathered to talk about society's backward attitude towards death. Poppy Mardle, a funeral director in her mid-thirties, stood up and told us that the first dead body you see should not be someone you love. She said that she wished she could bring schoolchildren to her mortuary to confront death before they have to. You need to be able to separate the shock of seeing death from the shock of grief, she said. She thanked us for listening and sat down, the beer bottles clinking on the table. In all of my thinking about death, I had never considered this idea, that you could deliberately separate these specific shocks to save your own heart. Wow. 
that last that line beautiful. seemed really relevant to yeah, yeah, yeah. De Profundis and what we're going to be talking about today. Anyway, terrific book. All the Living and the Dead, Hayley Campbell, Raven Books. I love all that Bentham stuff. I thought you'd like yeah, that. No, I'm I chose that for you. Bentham, Bentham <laughs> wanted to, um, he wanted, instead of cemeteries, he wanted, uh, he wrote to London Municipal Council and saying, can we not just preserve people as kind of uh, ornaments in parks? So instead of burying them under, he's a great mm. horror of being buried and putrefaction. So he said, we should sort of literally pickle these people and turn them into ornaments. It's quite... Do you know Bentham also a great pioneer of gay rights? Yeah. Again, in keeping with today. Yeah. No, I, I, I wrote, a, a, I wrote a, a, an essay on him in the QI Book of the Dead, which um, is, he slept with a live pig, amongst many other things. He's like, life is very strange. Anyway. John. You're going to ask me, you, aren't you? What, yeah. have you, <laughs> you? what have you been reading this week? I'm, I'm, well, I'm going to talk about a book that, um, which I don't do very often on in this slot, a book that I'm bound to publishing, Villager by Tom Cox. Ah, the reason I'm going to talk right. about it is, apart from the fact that I know Stephen is a fan, but that Tom is, it's his first novel. He wrote a collection of stories a couple of years ago, really brilliant, dark stories called Help the Witch. Mm. This is maybe the sixth project we've done with with Tom. And that thing when you really hope that somebody's first novel is going to deliver and it comes in, it's even better than you'd hope for. It's a really extraordinary book, I think, Tom has, has written. It's set in, in, a, in a village in a hill in, on Dartmoor, which is where he now lives. And it has a kind of an Ulverton-y feel in that it's it's across time. It goes oh, from Tom the, was our guest, wasn't he, go, to talk about Ulverton? Yeah, of course. it came yeah. from from 1932 through to 2099. There's a brilliant bit at the end of the book where he he, he figures out what a search engine in 2099. <laughs> there are th stories that are thread, threaded through the book, so it's that it's that kind of portmanteau story. Different people take up different bits of the stories. Um, through it, there is. Uh, in the late 60s, a, a guy called R.J. McKendry blows into Underhill. He's a, a kind of a American singer-songwriter, and he writes a remarkable sequence of songs and how those sequence of songs are discovered and rediscovered and then written about, and then and then uh, that, that's a kind of theme to the book. It also turns out that Tom has released with his friend Will Twynham. Mm. They have released the songs of R.J. McKendry. Oh, so life oh, imitating art. There is a thing in it that he does too. The, 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 the book begins and ends, and in various places, the hill, the sentient landscape. He actually goes as far, a bit like, reminded me very much of Max Porter with his mm. uh, dead papa toothwort. Mm. He turns mm. the hill into a character. So I thought I'd just read a little bit. It gives you the flow. It's really funny. It's profound in places. A lot of his non-fiction is about folklore and about walking and about landscape. He's policing that interesting, that interesting boundary between what is folklore and what is actual mm. history, what is natural history, all of that in this book. But here is the, here is the, the hill uh, reflecting, and this is sort of now in 2022, reflecting on having had pylons stuck into it mm, for, mm. for several years. Can you imagine it? You're there, the dew is fresh all over you, the sky has not long got light, and the most dystopian sights in your immediate vicinity are a mounted hay turner that's slowly shedding its paintwork and sinking into a spinney on your pelvic girdle, and Charles Bamford's abandoned prototype Vauxhall cadet on Riddlefoot Lane, and then suddenly these men arrive, and they appear to be erecting these giant robots on the bridges of your feet, a long line of them, marching off into the distance, towering metal soldiers that seem to presage the coming of something terrible, but you don't quite know what. And you are powerless. All you can do is stand there and watch as they're put in place, as they become 
an intrinsic part of you that you've never asked for. And then lines are connected between them, lines that fizz and crackle. That is even scarier because it's ugly and dark. And there have been ugly and dark things forever, which it has been possible to accept because they seem part of the natural balance of everything. But now it seems that the ugly and dark things will be controlled by machines. And that is going to be different. You don't know how it's going to be different, but you know. The word pylon means gateway in ancient Greek. The fact we call them pylons is probably a lot to do with the fact that in the 1920s, when pylons were first introduced, was an archaeologically excitable decade, especially in Egypt. Pylons were, the, were what the double towers were called that you found at the entrance to Egyptian temples. I don't have an entrance, unless you count several hundred fox and badger holes, but I do have three pylons. Am I a temple? I can certainly play that role if you want me to. People do seem to drawn to me spiritually, although not in any official capacity. I notice that people are often quieter, calmer when they're on me, sometimes even inspired to find parts of themselves that they can't quite reach when they're down below, although I can't take all or even most of the credit for that. I feel on the whole that it is less the entrance protected by my pylons is in me and more than I am an entrance to what resides directly behind me, almost all of which is bigger, taller, darker, more untamed. Yeah, Villager, Tom, Tom Cox. Available in hardback from which publisher? Uh, that's uh, from Unbound. Ah, <laughs> good, good to hear. We'll be back in just a sec. Heading back to the top of the charts. <laughs> yes. Do you know, there's a whole terrible symbolic poem you could write about that that leads from the jollity of the Victorian middle classes to feces and blood by way of Richard Doyley Cart. Uh, it, it's just a peculiar and horrible coincidence that it was Richard... Doily Cart, who produced Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, uh, their operas, and made a fortune from it, of course, and, and he always took them over to Broadway as well. And when they wrote Patience, an extract from which we've just heard, which was a, a parody, a, a, a guying, or a, a satire on the aesthetic young men, Whistler and Wilde and their set, um, 
Bunthorn was the, the character. Richard Dolicart realised that patients wouldn't play in New York because they had no concept of these people. The British knew about them because of punch cartoons of them, you know, going down the Strand with a lily in my hand and all that sort of thing, saying everything was too utterly utter. Uh, and, have it, and, and, and it didn't mean anything to America. Uh, America had just come out of the Civil War, for heaven's sake. It wasn't yet the Gilded Age quite. So he offered Wilde a huge sum of money to go to America to tour around and lecture and let everybody look at him and understand the nature of the aesthete. So Wilde went and he, he, he gave possibly the first ever lectures ever given on interior decoration. <laughs> <laughs> he called them the House Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he lectured on Benvenuto Cellini, the Renaissance mm. silversmith. And he was quite a sensation, famously arriving in the customs hall saying he had nothing to declare mm. but his genius. He then, of course, some people think he, he may have developed syphilis from a, a female prostitute at some point along his journey, in, in uh, maybe in Leadville, Colorado, where he went. Um, he returned to England and determined to be an MP and a respectable figure and a great man, and he'd write novels and be, you know, and maybe plays. And he met Constance and married her. But fast, fast forward to the very terrible moment where he's standing in the dock having lost his libel case against the Marquis of Queensbury, he's then arrested and servants from the Savoy Hotel testify they found things on the bedsheets mm. when he'd spent time there with youths. And Richard Doyley Cart, from his profits from patients and other things, built the Savoy Hotel and got Escoffier, the great chef, and made it the finest hotel in Europe. And Wilde would stay there a lot. So there is a kind of weird circularity. So when I hear that song, I think, how peculiar, isn't it? That, and, and in a sense, this is what Wilde speculates about in De Profundis, yeah. mm -hmm. that the, the life of pleasure does lead to something profoundly to do with sorrow, squalor, and misery. And until you've come to terms with that and hit the bottom, uh, you will never, never achieve any kind of stasis or happiness. I, I wanted to play it in because it premieres in 1891, which is the first great Annus Maribilis for Wilde. Mm. He buys a box for the opening night. So he's, he, this idea of him as modern celebrity, which is much mm. remarked upon, but he's, he's already become famous in London for being Oscar Wilde, and then he's become famous in America for touring with lectures. I was thinking like a stand-up comedian. You go mm. out and you spend yeah. two years yep. breaking America. Uh, and then he he comes back and but if you listen to the song, what's so interesting is I think you can hear within the song the very seeds of the things which the English come to hate him yes. for. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's all all fun and games he's, until someone loses yeah. an eye. He's clever. He's unmanly. He's unhealthy. Yeah. There's something the, wrong. The seeds of the tragedy are there. Yeah. 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 Stephen, when did you first read De Profundis, some version thereof? It, it was, I was about 16, I think. I'd loved Oscar Wilde for f six or seven years and had slowly begun to engage with his more difficult writing for a child. Um, the Soul of Man, you mentioned, The Soul of Man Under Socialism is the full title, which sounds like a very <laughs> heavy political essay, but it's, it's utterly brilliant. Yeah. And it really Amazing. is a remarkable piece of writing. And, and we could do well to read it now. It speaks so much towards yeah. uh, politics and, and, and thought. I grew up in the country, and my parents were not particularly enamoured of television. 
we had one. It was a small thing about the size of a large coffee mug. And it, it, lived, it lived in a cupboard. In a cupboard, yeah. And if a member of the royal family should decide to get married or Winston Churchill died or some Americans decided to skip around on the surface of the moon, then it would be taken out and looked at because something important should be seen. But my father did not approve of his children sitting in around watching it during the day or night even. Always more things to be done. But anyway, he was away, over the way, as we used to say. He used to work in his laboratory as a scientist. So it was a rainy Sunday, and I turned on the television, and, and it's snowy black and white was a film, and I couldn't quite work out what it was. I could tell it wasn't Shakespeare, but it, at the same time, it clearly wasn't contemporary. And people were speaking in the most remarkable way. And you know how it is with a film, when it's good, you, you sort of remember every single part of it. When it's bad, the whole thing flies from your memory. So I, these scenes were burned into my memory, and, and even the phrases. There's a young man who says to a beautiful young woman, I hope I won't offend you if I state quite openly and frankly that you seem to me to be in every way the visible personification of absolute perfection. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I thought, I'd never heard it. <laughs> I knew it was funny because, of course, it is. There's a, an inbuilt irony that that you don't have to consciously be aware of, which is that a declaration of love should be in Saxon language. I love you, not you are the visible personification of absolute perfection. If you have time to develop a, a, a an oratun sentence like that, you can't be in the throes of love. And 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 so it's a wonderful joke. And and I just knew it was funny, but also. I had never heard language used like it. And I ran to my mother afterwards and said, Mummy, I hope you won't be offended if I say that you seem to me to be in every way <laughs> the visible personification of absolute perfection. She said, what are you talking about? Anyway, she explained that obviously what I'd been watching was the importance of being earnest. And we lived in the country. And as Sidney Smith, Smith once said, miles from the nearest lemon. And... Uh, um, but we did have a portable library that came every other Thursday in, in, in a, a Pantechnica, a little grey van. Amazing. And it, it trundled along, and there I was waiting for it, and it's, the driver got wheezingly out and went round and opened a door in the side, lowered the steps and patted my bottom into the interior <laughs> in the way that people did in those days without having to be arrested. And uh, there was the nice woman in the cardigan and the little demi-lune spectacles on a chain and powdery cheeks who said, hello, my dear. And I said, have you got the importance of being earnest by Oscar Wilde? And she helped me find it and stamped it out that springy stamp that the, the library books used to be adorned with. And I rushed home with it and, and read the four comedies, you know, A Woman of No Importance, An Ideal Husband, Lady Fandermere's Wind, and, uh, and the, the, of course, The Importance. And I learned The Importance more or less off by heart from then on. Then I ran back and said, have you got anything more? And she eventually found the complete works of Oscar Wilde. I rushed those, mm. home with those and started to read them and didn't understand them all. And then went back the next week. Have you got anything more? She said, well, you've had the complete works and that's the complete works. But I found in that little van a book by Montgomery Hyde called The Trials of Oscar Wilde. And I, she looked at me and said, how old are you, my darling? And I said, 14. I was probably 12. Mm. And she said, well, all right. And she stamped it. And I took it home and I started to read it. And slowly this story emerged. Mm. And, and it began to get darker and darker and unhappier and unhappier. Because it was so wonderful to read about what a... What a friend he was! What a what a supporter of others! What a what a cause of wit in others, as, as Shakespeare says about uh, Falstaff. You know, not just a wit, but a cause of wit in others. And 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 then to see him pulled down like that, um, 
and all the time inside myself to know that the crime he had committed was a crime that I could might perhaps commit, mm. that I shared, to use his own wonderful word, his nature. Mm -hmm. and, and and so that was a, it was both a thrilling thing to read but also a terrifying thing to read yeah yeah uh, why don't we hear from um you've mentioned him already Stephen Wilde's grandson Merlin Holland to just tell us what De Profundis is brilliant when they sent my grandfather Oscar Wilde to prison in 1895 such was the scandal surrounding his prosecution that his wife and children had to leave the country and change their names the family partly as a permanent rebuke to Victorian morality, has never reverted to its rightful name, which is why I'm called Merlin Holland and not Merlin Wilde, as I should be. So they put him away for two years in grey Victorian prisons and deprived him at first of something which was almost more important to him than his freedom, pen, paper, words and the colours of the outside world. Like all prisoners, he was allowed to write one letter under strict supervision every three months. But that was all. It was not until he had been in prison for fourteen months and had passed from Pentonville to Wandsworth to Reading that he was finally allowed writing materials in his cell. At first, Oscar only had a coarsely bound notebook. But as he wrote to a friend in September 1896, I take notes of books I read and copy lines and phrases in poets. The mere handling of pen and ink helps me. I cling to my notebook. Before I had it, my brain was going in very evil circles. Then, early in 1897, he started on this long letter to young Bosie Douglas, which has now become known as De Profundis. So I'm going to ask my colleague John Mitchinson, is this a letter? <laughs> um, well, when it was presented in 1905, it, it wasn't really a letter. It was presented more as a kind of a, a philosophical meditation on on Christianity and the Romantic artist. I mean, it's it's an uneasy letter in that it is it is definitely at the beginning he is he is writing as far as we can see he is writing to Bosie mm. and explaining. Mm what's happened and it's it, it's uh there are people i think at the time who felt it was that he was just it was just self justification and he he was pinning all the blame on but i i rereading it again and i i first read this when i was a student and and actually have come back to it this time like uh, so many things having lived more this just is a, a, a more profound more um more precise more humane more beautiful piece of work than I even remember it being, and I was I was always keen on it. I think it, it, he comes back to the to the kind of letter towards the end, and so it's sort of it's topped and tailed as a letter. But in the middle, yeah, you have I think one of the most. I mean, it's one of the great, I think, reflections on the function of religion in a secular age. He isn't religious. He converts. We think. At the end, but does, yeah. does he really to, to please Robbie? Probably, yeah, mm. probably. Mm. But re really, this is this is this is radical. Taking up all of that kind of, he'd read all the, you know, he'd read Renan's Life of Christ. He he'd taken on board all the biblical scholarship of the nineteenth century, and his vision of Christ is, I would, I would contest, the vision of Christ that most people who have a relationship with Christianity without being believers. 
I mean, he 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 did it first and he did it better. I've weirdly just read over the over Easter weekend that or reread that uh, Emmanuel Carrere's The Kingdom, which is an amazing again and one uh, an interesting twentieth century mm. version of a, a difficult human being dealing and grappling with the Gospels and going back to original text. And I thought reading that back to back with this, I, I thought well, Wilde Wilde was doing something so. I mean, he was writing a letter in prison under the worst possible circumstances, mm. but finding a way of being mm. a, a genuinely adding to our understanding of religion, genuinely adding to our sense of what's what it's possible for words to do. When, when the the review in Vanity Fair by Max Beerbohm calls calls it the Lord of Language, which is a which is a phrase that, that he uses why, himself. About, about himself. Yeah. Yeah. So, is it a letter? Well, it was a letter that he... A letter not to send, is that not... <laughs> I, I think... After he left jail, yeah. he, he gave the copy to, to Robbie. Yeah. And, and Robbie had it typed out under his orders twice and, mm. and sent a copy to to its supposed recipient, Bosie, who... Who didn't read it. Claimed to have not read it mm. and thrown it on the fire and then later claimed not even to have received it. That was mm. in a later court There's, case. There is that horrible moment when Oscar is writing... He, He's released and he's writing against the the advice of everybody to Bosey. And Bosey's warm response to him makes him think, he's read my letter and understood it. It's yeah. what's well, just, it's tested with the D'Urbervilles, yeah. isn't it? That, that kind of I, I, I find self-deception. This, I think this is one of my favourite pieces of prose yeah. ever. I, in a sense, I don't care if it's a letter. Every time I read it, I think I've found the centre of it, but it's always different. And I think um, as a result of preparing for this show, I'm, I'm finally getting closer to understanding why that might be. Firstly, the prose is written under very difficult circumstances over three months. Attention is wandering, although concentration on quality of output oh, yes. is remarkable. The phrase right? making is as yeah. great as it always was. Amazing. But... As I understand it, Wilde did not necessarily, necessarily, we don't know for sure, intend for the whole manuscript to be published as one document. And what he saw it as was a kind of pot of um, material which could be divided up in several ways, some to Lord Alfred Douglas, but, but, and this is my final point before I go back to you, Stephen, I think the, the magic of it, like all the great white or black magic in books, is partly deliberate and partly accidental. Do you know what I mean? There's space in it Mm. as a result of it not following any one template. Yeah, I quite agree. And there are parts that you could read as recrimination and even bitterness, and there are other parts you can read as great forgiveness. But I think what makes it cohere is that his vision in the second half of Christ Artist is part of his lifelong search for an understanding of the creative act and of art. And he ends up, and this is a word we were using earlier when talking about him, sympathy. He understands that the fact that he's the one who has suffered, he's the one whose name is forever mired and, as far as he knows, will never, ever rise again, that his reputation has been trashed, that his future life will be one of exile and disgrace. But he has won because he's found in that suffering 
something profoundly important, whereas Bosey, he suspects, as he writes the letter, and of course it turns out to be true, although he is free as air, is the one who is really suffering. And that is what he understands the Christ to be about, that the Christ tells people to give up money and follow him, not because the poor need to be given the money and you'll give it away, but because the money is ruining your soul is and is bad for you and you will be free if you give it away. Mm -hmm. You will be free if you do things that are often painful and you humiliate yourself. And Wilde is in that position because he is he's come to the depths. From the depths he writes, I cry out from the depths. And, and it is, you know, it's something we know in um, a more finished kind of psychological closed world of things like addiction or whatever, that you have to get to the depths before you can purify yourself and arise again and be cleaned of your addiction, whatever it might be. Uh, it could be gambling. It doesn't have to be a substance. It can be a behavior. And and in that wider sense, Wilde was an addict. He was, and, and he writes about it very honestly. Mm -hmm. and, and in a sort of unknowing way, avant la lettre, as the French would say, he is, he's, he's, Part of the letter is a very good example of how you can reinvent yourself. Yeah. I mean, the irony is, of course, he didn't because the love story, the terrible love story with Bosie is bigger than anything else. And that's what makes it true, of course. It's, it makes it feel almost authored that, that having come to all these amazing resolutions and understandings as he does in the letter, the moment he meets the rose-red lips and the blue eyes of Bosie, he's off to Naples and uh, Capri mm, and, mm, and, mm. and then Paris into a pretty uh, a, a life even worse than the one before. And that's another thing. I'm just going to finish this, but every addict will tell you that if you, I mean, let's just take it with cigarettes. If you, if you, if you give up smoking when you're smoking 20 a day and it's taken you maybe 10 years to go from four or five a day to 20 a day, and you give up for 20 years, when you fall off the wagon and start again, you don't start like you did when you... When you start at the 20. 20. <laughs> and he started with the squalor and the terror uh, as soon yeah, as he was yeah. out of jail, is, almost. Is, is it a book you go back to, Stephen? I mean, you know, is it a book that you find, in, in, as it were, de profundis in your life that you've, you've found helpful? I do remind myself of passages, and I do quote the ones that I like a lot to myself or, or to others. Having been in prison myself, <laughs> which I was for a while, not as long and not as harsh, I, um, I, I also, um, you know, I find it very, very personal. I yeah. mean, when I read yeah. it, I actually, I can always, pic I can actually picture him at that desk yeah. with that pen in the, in the pain that he was mm. in. He'd had a miserable time the first year or so, of it especially, and and even at Reading. His, the first governor, Isaacson, yeah. Colonel Isaacson, was not at all sympathetic. Mm. But fortunately, Major Nelson came to uh, to replace him, who was a much more progressive and and, and sympathetic person, who who allowed him the writing and so on. And he was immensely grateful for that. And he'd burst his eardrum, and his health had been appalling and dysentery and all. Of them. I mean, he was told by his lawyer that if he got the the, the maximum sentence um, of of two years at hard labour, which the Labour Share Amendment 
which was the, the, the law he had um, transgressed, uh, that he wouldn't be expected to survive. People of our class are not expected to survive such a sentence. Yes, yes. Mm. The, the, the governor, the second, what's the name of the second Reading governor? Nelson. Ma Nelson. Major Nelson. Yeah. Major Nelson told Robbie Ross, he said to him, he's, he's got two years. Mm. And, and the fact the, the, that the Wild lived three and a half... Yeah, the treadmill was equivalent to climbing Ben Nevis twice yes. in a day. Just yeah. horrible. This is the current caretaker, Sandy Frow, of Reading Jail, recorded in Wild Cell, talking to Neil Bartlett about the conditions in Reading Jail at the time uh, Wild was composing uh, the prison manuscript. Sandy... What would Oscar's experience have been when he first came in through these doors? It was a feared prison. The separate system was in place and the separate system was where prisoners were segregated from each other. They also had to wear what was known as a Scotch bonnet, so it meant that they had a cricket-type cap with a veil hanging down. The prison guards at night wore felt boots so that the place did run absolutely in silence. The only sound you'd have heard were the keys. So it was a place that must have been a kind of mental torture for Oscar himself. Oscar would have been actually confined to his cell for more or less 23 hours of the day because the oakum picking, which was his hard labour, was actually done within the cells. They had an hour's exercise where they went down to the yard and unless they were actually going to chapel, then they were confined to their cells. That's quite a change from sitting in your study writing the importance of being earnest to watching your fingers start to bleed from picking up. I've had the pleasure of being shown around that prison by Sandy, in fact. And hello, Sandy, <laughs> if you're listening. He's a terrific fellow and a wonderful guardian of, of the memory and, and, yeah. and great understanding of the details of the appalling penal system. I wanted to just keep that fresh in people's minds while we ask you to read to us because we talked about we 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 it's fascinating this with wild such is wild's genius and reputation for genius that i find the experience when reading de profundis is I, i'm i'm going along quite nicely and i'm thinking oh that's very good oh I, oh i like that oh that's oh that's so moving and then every so often i think and you wrote this by no, no. gaslight on whatever paper you, you could, could get find, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, under tremendous... I mean, it, it, def it actually does really defy belief yeah. that you, under those circumstances, you could produce something like this. Mm. I must say to myself that I ruined myself and that nobody, great or small, can be ruined except by his own hand. I am quite ready to say so. I'm trying to say so, though they may not think it at the present moment. This pitiless indictment I bring without pity against myself. Terrible as was what the world did to me, what I did to myself was far more terrible still. I was a man who stood in symbolic relations to the art and culture of my age. I had realised this for myself at the very dawn of my manhood and had forced my age to realise it afterwards. Few men hold such a position in their own lifetime and have it so acknowledged. It is usually discerned, if discerned at all, by the historian or the critic long after both the man and his age have passed away. With me, it was different. 
I felt it myself and made others feel it. Byron was a symbolic figure, but his relations were to the passion of his age and its weariness of passion. Mine were to something more noble, more permanent, of more vital issue, of larger scope. The gods had given me almost everything. But I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. I amused myself with being a flaneur, a dandy, a man of fashion. I surrounded myself with the smaller natures and the meaner minds. I became the spendthrift of my own genius, and to waste an eternal youth gave me a curious joy. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went to the depths in the search for new sensation. What the paradox was to me in the sphere of thought, perversity became to me in the sphere of passion. Desire, at the end, was a malady or a madness or both. I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber one has some day to cry aloud on the housetop. I ceased to be lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul and did not know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me. I ended in horrible disgrace. There is only one thing for me now, absolute humility. Wow. It's quite a passage, oh, that, isn't it? It's tremendously <laughs> made. Yeah, and, and wow. it, it is strong and right and good. And, of course, there is behind it an echo of, I have come to this conclusion, Bozy, you must too. Yeah. Because, yeah, being careless of lives of others, even though he might be right to say that he was careless of the lives of others, nothing like as careless as aristocratically careless as Bozy was. Uh, Oscar was known for his kindness to people and his consideration and his thoughtfulness. In the manuscript, just the next line in the manuscript, what you were saying there, Stephen, there is only one thing for me now, absolute humility. Just as there is only one thing for you, meaning Bosey, absolute humility also, you had better come down into the dust and learn it beside me. Yes. It's beautiful. Isn't it? I, and the Isn't phrase it? that I've underlined, the spendthrift of my own genius. Yeah. What, mm. Here's a question about Wilde. Yeah. And here's a question about <laughs> project. No, a trick. John and Stephen both. A trick. How does he do it? How does he say, I am a genius and you feel sorry for him. <laughs> How do you say, I am a genius, with humility? It's so interesting, that, isn't it? There is something in his manner that, as you say, does allow one to feel sorry for him and not to think that it's just a, a showy peacock uh, making grand claims for himself. It's, I suppose, the fact that you trust his honesty. You trust, you trust his vision and his understanding of things to be greater than just about anybody else you know. I mean, uh, underneath all that um, um, serene, swan-like ease was a very, very busy pair of feet paddling through the literature of the world. He understood Russian and German literature and French literature and philosophy, and he read con constantly and remembered and quoted and thought hard. Mm. And it, it, it didn't come that easily. 
but he made it look as if it came easily, like a you know, like a Ronnie O'Sullivan. If we're talking of geniuses, uh, <laughs> but he, he liked to work, though. He did. Yeah, he liked to work very this much. Is, so. This is part of the torture of yeah. of prison life. Is the is the eternities of he says the suffering just goes on and over and on and over and tomorrow will be the same and today has lasted an eternity and we start again tomorrow because as we heard from Merlin Holland there he had no paper he had nothing to yeah and of course w w when he was in various places in on the south coast or in hotels or borrowed houses trying to write plays. Bosey was the one who was stopping him from working and plucking at him and pulling at him and stopping him yeah. from concentrating. And and spending all his money. I mean, it, it's it's that thing of having... It's very rare to have anyone who has been that famous, that fated, to have everything taken away. I mean, I, I, it's... And you can see why the, 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 the biblical story is, is so attractive to him, that... And why he, you know, he doesn't need Christ to be the the Son of God. He just needs him to be somebody with a with a poetical soul, with, a, with an artistic soul. I see to Christ that imagination was simply a form of love. All he has left in the end in this cell is is I mean he has some access to literature, but he has he has a way of telling a story that makes that makes sense out of what he's been through. Yeah. And the thing is that he he does it, he does it, but it it is I think the the bit where he comes out of jail that that that, that is so painful. You know the fact that he is he's you know he knows he's in disgrace. He knows he's going to have to leave. He wants to leave England. He's sick of England. But the 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 slow kind of descent into that terrible death in a cheap hotel in Paris, sort of drunk and. And, and and sort of even he's 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 squandered his many of his closest friendships by this point as well. It's 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 almost unbearable to read. Yeah, it is. And I think then you're right about that point about Christ and the imagination being a form of love. And one of the most remarkable things about Wilde is that even in the height of his apparently profligate days, um, when he was beginning to see Bosey and rarely saw his children or his wife, except occasionally to read them stories, which he then put into a book, The House of Pomegranates, and had its <laughs> those wonderful fairy stories, mm. The Young mm. King and The Happy Prince and so on. Even at that time, those stories show that he had an awareness of precisely what was going to happen to mm. him. Because almost every one of the fables he writes is about a glorious, happy, luxurious thing having to learn that actually life is suffering. Yeah, um, and whether it's the, uh, the 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 statue of the young king, or, or the who who sees that every piece, you know, that who sees the poverty, or the, hap the 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 young king is about to be crowned, if you remember, and he yeah. has a series of dreams before his coronation. He's so looking forward to his tissue of gold cloak and his amazing crown. He's going to be so beautiful. He's going to be the most stunning picture anyone has ever seen of riches and luxury. But in his dream. He sees the old woman sewing, trying to make his tissue, yeah. and the, her children are dying around her. She's hardly got enough light. She's going blind. And then another dream happens, and he sees a boy being sent down from a boat to, to, to pluck p 
pearls from an oyster and he comes up with the best pearl, the blood streaming from his ears because of the pressure and the boys push back into the water to yeah, die. But yeah. the pearl will be perfect for the young yeah. king's coronation. And so when he, <laughs> when he finally wakes up, having had these dreams in which he sees the provenance of beauty, the beauty is carved from hillsides by, you know, emerald miners who, who, whose lives are held at nothing. Uh, he sees this, he has this vision, and, and so he tells his Chamberlain and everyone else that he doesn't want the tissue of gold cloak, he doesn't want the crown, he just wears a, a peasant's hessian um, and, and a, you know, rough old uh, straw for, mm. his, uh, for his hat. And, and when he goes into the church, the light shines through the stained glass and lights him up. And, and and it becomes a blaze of gold and mm -hmm. colour and jewels. And it's a wonderful story, Amazing. but it's a magnificent way of explaining what we all feel, which is every day when, when you buy something, you know, we all know about... Uh, you know, blood diamonds and so on. But, yeah. it, you know, it's true of almost, you know, clothes, cheap fashion. How is it made? And he was asking those questions. So he always had that same instinct of imagination of where do things come from? What really are they? What is poverty? What are riches? Mm -hmm. And... Uh, he, he hid and, and, himself from himself. And found that, the language to express it. Yes. Well, that's the thing. The story you've just told, of course, also prefigures De Profundis. It's yes, a pearl retrieved from the dead. Yes. Yeah. Right. But absolutely. That, and, and the fact that, as John said, he kind of <laughs> defaults mm. on his intentions, as stated in the yes. essay, yes. in the letter, that, that matters and it doesn't matter. No, yeah, it no. doesn't. What, the, yeah. the capturing, as I say, what I, what I find so incredible about De Profundis is fixing something that isn't fixed. The flow of intellectual yeah. and emotional thought and how those two yeah. things relate to one another. Extraordinary, really. This is um, Tom Stoppard speaking in a documentary, an omnibus documentary from the 90s, Stephen, in which you took part as well. This is Stoppard on, on Wilde's downfall. I think that one of the things which make us feel for Wilde is what Richard Elman calls that berserk passion, that uh, he met somebody and it was as though the rest had been written by Aeschylus. You know, he just went on and on until... Um, and it was self-aware. And he knew that it was tragic. I think that he was a notable victim of uh, that English genius for cutting down the people who are too smart for their own good. <laughs> and I think there was quite a lot of pleasure, much of it expressed in quite malign terms when he fell. You know, I would quite like to read what the Daily Telegraph said at that moment, <laughs> but there were worse things said. I mean, real glee to typify wild from our perspective as a gay hero is to do him a disservice. He was a hero to humanity. There was um, an edge to that delight in paradox, which made it more than humorous. It was, it was more than wit. He did make people, he forced people to consider the, the, the unconsiderable. I, I, you're nodding furiously. I think that's course, so true, right. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, where he talks uh, in the passage that I read earlier about, uh, Wilde talks about uh, what the paradox form was for me um, 
uh, you know, in the in the verbal and the artistic mm. sphere, perversity became for me in the you know. In, in, but but the paradox, and his classic examples of wit, are an inversion of what was understood to be true by the Victorians, and by turning upside down the morality that the Victorians were so proud of and so addicted to and so um, utterly insistent about. By turning it upside down and showing the reverse is true, he really was humiliating, essentially. the. I mean, you can take it. An obvious example of turning it upside down is a, a Bon Mot-like uh, work is the curse of the drinking <laughs> classes. classes. Now, what's great about that is it's true. <laughs> the drinking classes, <laughs> the leisured classes who go and drink a lot do not like the work. But of course, what he's doing is turning upside down the, yeah. the sanctimonious Victorian phrase mm. that drink is the curse of the working class. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's just one small example, but he does that in everything. In, in I think it's elsewhere in some point in De Profundis, he says, I... Uh, I change the colour of things. things. Yeah. And, and, yes. and, and, and again, right. here's an example, which again is trivial, but if you expand it, if you extrapolate from it, this, this is what he means. At table, he would always, uh, when, the, when the waiter came, asked what's, what he would like to drink, he would say, um, I'm some, you know, and some yellow wine for me. Um, <laughs> because he thought it ridiculous to call white wine white, because it wasn't. It was mm. yellow. <laughs> he saw that it was yellow. Mm, yeah. That is mm. the colour <laughs> white wine is. And and you know, that's just a say it's just a small thing. But if you do that to something in a deep area of philosophy where you realise that the, your culture and your society has misnamed sin, he was a moralist. And and, mm. and everything that was upside down was that one of the reasons he was actually found guilty was because they thought Dorian Gray was an immoral book. It's a morality tale. And and so everything was upside down. I, I tweeted this the other day from, it's very short, from The Soul of Man Under oh, Socialism. And I, as I tweeted it, I thought, well, this is 130 years old. And I felt anxious tweeting it because it seemed so insolent and provocative <laughs> but it's so great stick around to the punchline yeah, yeah. the public has always and in every age been badly brought up <laughs> right already you're going oh no oh no they are continually asking art to be popular to please their want of taste to flatter their absurd vanity to tell them what they have been told before, to show them what they ought to be tired of seeing, to amuse them when they feel heavy after eating too much, <laughs> and to distract their thoughts when they are wearied of their own stupidity. Now, art should never try to be popular. The public should try to make itself artistic. I agree with that. I agree that's so true, but also that's <laughs> every, not... Every publisher had, should have it pinned over their desk. That's <laughs> the opposite of late capitalism. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, he also made, made the extraordinary point... Um, which Marxists make, um, you know, about charity, perhaps. But he said the enemy of the slave is the kind slave master. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But also this idea of through you see the thread. This is why I was recommending um, the soul of man according to socialism in relation to David Fundis. The thread of, and whatever the centre of David Fundis might be. Mm. Wild 
Wilde's career is one of self-realisation. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely right. Yeah. He he is trying to make his life a work of art, yes. not as a pose, though a though posing would be part of it, but yes. as the natural endpoint of a human being of his talents and aims. And actually, there is a through line yeah, yeah. from uh, the earlier work in all its different plays, stories, genres, epigraphs, yeah. uh, epigrams, right through to David Fun. It's probably not into the Ballad of Reading Jail, but even no, there. No, uh, yeah, there's a hint, I agree. It, it is he's full of it. And and um, I wanted to read a section here, just a very yeah, short, please. short bit. Um, well, this is just a bit here because of our... Our science, uh, our neuroscience <laughs> podcast, John. You might enjoy this. It just, uh, he says, I said in Dorian Gray that the great sins of the world take place in the brain, but it is in the brain that everything takes place. We now know that we do not see with the eyes or hear with the ears. They are really channels for the transmission, adequate or inadequate, of sense impressions. It is the brain. Uh, it is in the brain that the poppy is red. The apple is odorous, mm. that the skylark sings. It's amazing. I quote this a lot when, you know, talking at schools and things like that, and it, it's as true as it ever was. As regards the other subject, the relation of the artistic life to conduct, it will no doubt seem strange to you that I should select it. People point to Reading Jail and say, that is where the artistic life leads a man. Well, it might lead to worse places. The more mechanical people, to whom life is a shrewd speculation, depending on a careful calculation of ways and means, always know where they are going and go there. They start with the ideal desire of being the parish beadle, and in whatever sphere they are placed, they succeed in being the parish beadle, and no more. A man whose desire is to be something separate from himself, to be a member of parliament or a successful grocer or a prominent solicitor or a judge or something equally tedious, invariably <laughs> succeeds in being what he wants to be. That is his punishment. Mm. Those who want a mask have, have to, to wear it. it. But with the dynamic forces of life and those in whom those dynamic forces become incarnate, it's different. People whose desire is solely for self-realisation never know where they're going. They can't know. In one sense of the word, it is, of course, necessary, as the Greek oracle said, to know oneself. That is the first achievement of knowledge. But to recognise that the soul of a man is unknowable is the ultimate achievement of wisdom. The final mystery is oneself. When one has weighed the sun in the balance and measured the steps of the moon and mapped out the seven heavens star by star, there still remains oneself. Who can calculate the orbit of his own soul? When the son went out to look for his father's asses, he did not know that a man of God was waiting for him with the very chrism of coronation and that his own soul was already the soul of a king. And he wrote it in prison. In prison. I know. <laughs> Just remind ourselves again. It's so wonderful that, though, isn't it? I mean, absolutely. I mean, that act, that self-realization issue, and it's yeah, one. Yeah. It's as modern as any thought yep. anyone ever had. This is Neil Tennant from the Pet Shop Ooh. Boys speaking in the late nineteen nineties. 
about why we still are talking, well, why we were talking about Wilde 25 years ago and why we're talking about him now. I've had a theory in pop music that when someone becomes, or a group or artist becomes successful, when they carry on being successful, they go from success into what I call their imperial phase, where they can do no wrong, where it seems like it will go on like this forever. And, you know, as with Napoleon's career, it never does go on forever. It, um, something goes disastrously wrong. And the imperial phase is followed by the survival, or it's followed by disaster, that the whole thing fades away. For me, the most fascinating moment of Oscar Wilde's life is the afternoon when the libel trial has collapsed and a warrant is going to be issued for his arrest. And he decides to stay in the country. And it's a fact that at the time, the, the warrant for his arrest was delayed um, to give Oscar Wilde the chance to catch the, the boat, the last boat train. And he has lunch. I think he must have weighed up what was going to happen to him. He must have known that he was going to, um, that he would be found guilty, because of course he knew that he was guilty, and decided that it was going to give him a platform uh, which would, as I say, make him into a legend. I think the fact that Oscar Wilde still matters proves that that afternoon in the Cadogan Hotel, Oscar Wilde made the right decision. The, the writing is really only a part of the, of the Oscar Wilde story, and it's the tragic downfall it's from someone who was so, who had this imperial sense of um, that everything he, he, he would do would, would turn right, would, would fascinate people. What do you think? Listening, I mean, we're not, we're not, I'm not seeking to cause a 25 year <laughs> late fight with Neil Tennant. I just, no, I think a logician might say post hoc ergo propter hoc, you know, <laughs> that, that because, because what happened afterwards happened, it must yeah. have been because of that moment. It's, it's undoubtedly true that the importance of being earnest would always be held up to be the only Victorian play written at a time when more theatres were built anywhere in the world, <laughs> in London alone, and yet only one masterpiece from that entire long reign exists, and that is the importance of being earned. It is utterly flawless, mm. and we would still be celebrating mm -hmm. that play if, uh, if the fellow had been a, you know, died like, I don't know, Conan Doyle in the 30s or 40s or something, had a large waistcoat and a gold watch and was <laughs> Sir Oscar. Um, we would still worship yes. that play, but... Even that play, because of his life, everything about him is, I won't say tainted, is informed by, maybe has a, a halo or an, an unheard halo effect, as it were, for, of, of the terrible story of his downfall and the messianic nature of it, that he was a secular bohemian Christ. He had disciples, some mm -hmm. of whom betrayed him, um, and he, mm -hmm. he, he kind of rose again. I mean, one of the things, you know, when, when I started becoming sort of vaguely well-known and being asked to go to universities and give talks or whatever. And I noticed that, as in the 70s, in the early-ish 80s or mid-80s, people still on uh, students in their walls, on their posters, they tended to have Jimi Hendrix and Karl Marx. 
John Lennon or whatever, because if the world was going to be put to rights, it would be put to right by rock and roll music or, <laughs> or by, um, you know, revolutionary politics. But as the period changed into the 90s, I noticed more and more often there would be posters of Einstein and Oscar. Mm, those so two. Mm, but, you know, but the life of the mind, mm. because pop music and revolutionary politics had been sort of exploded and and... and Somehow shown to be worthless by the you know the collapse of the Berlin Wall and then the, the, the whole business of, of, of Russia and Stad have, Stadium Rock and yeah. Stadium <laughs> Rock and so on. It just became whereas you could look into Einstein's eyes and even if you didn't understand a word of his physics, you could see the crinkly international humanitarian in there and and sort of believe that this was someone who mattered. And and with Wilde, he was the student prince, and is the student prince. He is the, the prince of Bohemia, and, and that's true around the world. Mm, yeah. and, and I used to paint this image. If you've ever been to New York City and you've got in a cab, one of those yellow cabs, and, and asked you to go down, say, to the village uh, from Midtown, you'll, you'll be going probably down one of the down avenues, and the most obvious one is Fifth Avenue, very famous avenue, and it goes downtown one way. And bear with me, this is relevant. <laughs> As you pass 33rd Street, there's a very famous building, which is the Empire State Building. And you look out of your window and you crane round and there are, there are nearer buildings in the way. So you can't quite see it. But there's a phenomenon in New York traffic, which is wonderful when it goes right. And that is the synchronisation of the traffic lights. So if all the greens go at the right time, all the way down to Herald Square or whatever it is where you're going down to, you can look out through the back window across the parcel shelf and you see the Empire State Building launching up and up and up as the buildings that are nearer fall down to their right size. And so it's like a Saturn V rocket launching mm. and launching and launching. And the further away you get, the higher and higher mm. and higher mm. it is until it's just dominating the entire um, you know, cityscape. And it was like that in 1900. Wilde was nothing. He was destroyed. His reputation had gone completely. But as each decade passed, the pygmies that were closer had sudden, suddenly fell away and he became more and more of a symbol of all that's right and good in mm. art and life and friendship mm -hmm. and all the issues that, you know, you turn to him for. I, um, I, I should say in the programme Maker's Defence, uh, they follow that little clip of Neil... Tenant talking by playing David Bowie's Rock and Roll Suits, <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, which I think is is where he was heading from. So I thought it would be nice if uh, you said Stephen that you know 1900 uh, Wild was nothing. Uh, well, the good news is that in 1923 he returned via the offices of a medium called <laughs> Hester Travers Smith. Really? She published a book called Psychic Messages from Oscar Wilde. Wow. Which I can tell you, I, I'm, no, I'm no expert, but I, I question the veracity <laughs> of this. You cynic, surely not. Spoiled, sceptical. Yeah, 146 pages of, of wow. pseudo uh, Wildean wit. Great. Or Wildean pseudo wit. <laughs> anyway. But this being uh, the 100th anniversary of the publication of Ulysses by James Joyce. And when this episode goes out, it will be very close to Bloomsday. I noticed that one of the questions the medium asked Oscar in 1922 or three was, what is your opinion of Ulysses by James Joyce? 
I thought we should we might end by hearing that. <laughs> this is what Oscar Wilde thought. Oscar Wilde, quote unquote. Yeah. <laughs> thought of uh, Ulysses. Yes. I have smeared my fingers with that vast work. It is. <laughs> It has given me one exquisite moment of amusement. I gathered that if I hoped to retain my reputation as an intelligent shade, open to new ideas, I must peruse this volume. <laughs> it is, it's obviously wild. You can't doubt it for a moment, Stephen. Peruse. Oh, my, it's so pooterish. Yes. It, is, <laughs> it is pooterish, that's right. It is a singular matter that a countryman of mine should have produced this great bulk of filth. You may smile at me for uttering this when you reflect that in the eyes of the world I am a tainted creature, but at least I had a sense of the values of things on the terrestrial globe. <laughs> it, goes, it goes on from there. Oh but what I thought, was, just as a postscript to that, Joyce was so delighted <laughs> with that review that he encoded a review of it in Finnegan's Wake. There is a section of Finnegan's uh... Wake where they tap the table... And Oscar comes through and expresses disapproval of the book you are reading at that moment. So uh, I'd think a victory to Joyce on points there, really. I'm afraid that's where we must leave the inimitable Oscar. Huge thanks to Stephen for generously sharing his thoughts, insights, memories uh, about this extraordinary text. To Nikki Birch for putting us at ease with her oral aptitude. And to Unbound for smuggling in the Dante and the Flaubert. You can download all 162 previous episodes of Batlisted, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, batlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in sound and pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We aim to survive without paid for advertising. Your generosity helps us to do that. All patrons get to hear Backlisted episodes early. And for considerably less than Oscar spent on Bosey in a single evening, lock listeners get two extra lock listeds a month, our very own hotel suite where we three recline, smoke, pose and turn fine phrases of praise regarding books, films, shows and music we've detained us in the previous fortnight. Stephen, before we go, is there anything you feel we haven't covered that you would like to say <laughs> about Oscar Wilde? Here's a thought. Again pondering on what Wilde, as he lay dying in Paris, may or may not have thought that posterity would do for him or say about him. His um, body lies in Père Lachaise, the famous cemetery in Paris, and there's the sarcophagus by Jacob Epstein, and it's really wonderful. But a few years ago, you may recall, the Irish government and the French department responsible for the upkeep of Père Lachaise raised a sum of money to restore that monument. And the reason it needed restoring was that the surface of the marble had become corroded by the number of kisses. Daily, people go there. It's like Abbey Road in London, where you see all those mm, messages mm. to John, Paul, George and Ringo on, on the wall of the studios. It, it's the same thing. They, they, they come and they want to commune with Oscar. He stands for something for people all over the world. And you'll cry when you see the little post-it notes and, and, and torn pages from the Metro Carnets that are stuck in there, all saying, they killed you, Oscar, I cry for you every day, or Oscar, you help me, Oscar, you do this. And they, they people have a, a knowledge and a relationship with him, which is quite rare in all art and literature. That was wonderful. I think John and I and all the listeners, we're so grateful to you for making the time and, and coming in and, and uh, well, uh, 
giving us real insight into this wonderful text. One last thought. When you you know your original your original question about the letter, it it strikes me listening to you, Stephen, that actually what he produced in De Profundis is is a secular gospel, isn't it? Mm. It's a, it's a it's a religious text that isn't religious. It isn't self help. It isn't. Mm. It doesn't. He's not setting himself up as a philosopher. It, yeah. He's created something that is so original. Yes, and that. And to use a word that he uses himself, it's antinomian, which is to say it doesn't yeah. lay down laws of yeah. codes of behavior, but it gives you an insight into the very nature of one's soul. And 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 the health. fact that it didn't solve all his problems, that he did end up, for everybody, every broken person out there, he, he is a kind of, he is a secular saint. Yeah. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks. We'll see you next pleasure. time. Yeah. Bye. 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 And we'd also like to thank Reduced Listening for the extract from their programme, uh, Oscar Wilde's Letter from the Inside, uh, producers Joby Wardman and Jeremy Mortimer. Thank guys. I often turn to this paragraph. It's the last paragraph of the... Oscar Wilde biography by Richard Ellman, American academic. We inherit his struggle to achieve supreme fictions in art, to associate art with social change, to bring together individual and social impulse, to save what is eccentric and singular from being sanitized and standardized, to replace a morality of severity by one of sympathy. He belongs to our world more than to Victoria's. Now, beyond the reach of scandal, his best writings validated by time, he comes before us, still a towering figure, laughing and weeping with parables and paradoxes, so generous, so amusing, and so right. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.